0: That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra
1: that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick and ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. When we're thinking about where we are in our lives with our political participation, a question that emerges for me is, is this making me better, kinder, more curious, more humble, more gentle, more grace-filled, to use our
0: word? This is Sarah. And Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political
1: conversations. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. The schedule of our podcast does not always work well with political convention Mm -hmm. scheduling. I wish Mm -hmm. they would check with Mm -hmm. us first, but they haven't. So here's the situation. It is Thursday morning as we are sitting down to record. Tonight, we are going to join hopefully many of you on Hot Mic to watch as a community Joe Biden accept the nomination of his party. So the final night of the DNC, we'll watch together this evening. We have not yet seen it. Today, we are going to talk about the convention thus far. Next week is the RNC. We will do a Hot Mic gathering around the RNC. We don't have a complete schedule yet. So watch our email newsletter and social media and check in here on the podcast next week for information about that.
0: Before we dive into our thoughts on the Democratic National Convention, we just wanted to send out, you know, lots of love and light to both the people of Iowa who had a truly historic storm. People are still living without power. Entire cornfields were flattened. They're just reeling From this natural disaster. So, we're sending them so much love and light, and we'll have a link in the show notes to ways you can help. And also to the people of California who not only have a heat wave, but all of these lightning strikes. And so, of course, they are battling wildfires again, terrible air quality. You know, snowfall's basically made of ash. So we're just, we wanted to put the people of both states at the top of the show. We know there's, with the conventions and there's a lot of political news, and we don't want the people in either parts of the country that are really struggling with trauma and national disasters to feel forgotten.
1: I read this morning on uh, CNN, I think, that 15 states are on fire right now. There are like oh, large my scale fires in 15 states. It's really
0: disturbing. Okay, so let's do pivot a bit to the Democratic National Convention. I feel like I'm stating the ridiculously obvious and at this point, cliche observation. It looked a little bit different this year, (laughs) but we had a virtual convention thanks to the pandemic. I don't know if it was just the expectations were so low, but overall, it's been smooth. It's been entertaining. I Really like the new format. I'm not saying we should never go back to arenas again, but especially last night, Wednesday night, where Senator Kamala Harris accepted the nomination and President Barack Obama spoke, it was just
1: really good. I think the most difficult parts of this convention, and there haven't been many, have been the moments where they've tried to recreate that arena feel. So Mm -hmm. Senator Harris gave an excellent speech, I thought, and then at the end of it, we kind of had this awkward moment where her husband and Joe and Jill Biden came on stage and it felt like the arena should be exploding with applause and balloons dropping and whatever. And it was mask reporters sitting far apart and some people on the screen. And this moment of like, what what do we do now? What's
0: happening? But and, you know, I felt such sadness for her. I want her to have that. Like, I am really sad that she is breaking this barrier and having this historic moment. To a room of 30 reporters. I am. I just like I feel like, you know, we don't ever give politicians any grace to feel real human emotions. But I just want to send a shout out to Senator Harris. I hope you had a little moment to grieve that, like because, you know, to break that momentous ceiling and not to have that historic moment in a crowd full of people, you know, it's sad. I'm sad for her.
1: But the moments when they've really leaned into the fact that we're doing this virtually, I think have been really interesting Mm -hmm. to watch, pretty hopeful. I get on Twitter the sense that people who cover politics think all of this is cheesy and ridiculous, but here's the deal. They would think it's cheesy and ridiculous in any format because we are practiced at that level of cynicism, right? I think the national anthem with... The people from all the places in the United States, mostly kids, was fantastic. I liked the roll call, seeing people all over the country. You know, these places where we've really, like, seen the benefits of doing this virtually, to me, have been an indicator that there is a lot worth preserving about this format.
0: Well, and I just think the way, especially on Wednesday night. They packed in a lot of policy arguments. It's just tighter. You can keep people's attention. One, because the speeches are not playing to the room. So they're not playing for applause lines. They're playing for sort of impactful arguments. We don't have to wait for everybody to applaud and we don't have to like wait for everybody like to to try out those laugh lines that only, you know, Ann Richards can actually achieve. And so I just think that it felt like the argument being made was denser and tighter and less sort of just political theater because there was there there's less theater when it's just you and a camera, right? You're really having to make the case. And I felt that in Elizabeth Warren's speech I felt that absolutely in President Obama's speech and you know those moments where you see the clips and in the interviews around domestic violence and climate change and gun violence like they just, They felt really forceful and impactful in a way they didn't when we're breaking for applause or transitioning people on and off the stage. You know what I mean? Like, you can keep people's attention.
1: Especially because having attended the conventions in 2016, and look, I confess, just by personality, this is not my scene. It makes me roll my eyes. It feels emotionally manipulative to me. Like, I just don't dig it, okay? And once you're in that arena for a couple of days, for hours and hours on end, most of the people there are have politics as a very central component of their lives in the audience, right? But even the people who don't, by the end, are a professional audience. You understand, mm-hmm. oh, we clap now. Oh, we hold these signs this way now. This is what we do yeah. because we are actors in producing this thing for TV and in addition to all working together to create this vibe in this room that we want to have and there's nothing wrong with that and I felt that at both conventions there's also nothing partisan about that but I like better this sort of let me just share some thoughts with you And cycling through speakers much, much faster did help me. And I have a long attention span, but it really helped me hang with them more than I was able to when the speeches felt endless because of all that kind of dynamic with the crowd. So what did you think about President Obama's speech? I think it had to be a difficult decision for him to take the moment and really say what he thought. And I am very Mm. appreciative that he took the moment and really said what he thought. I understand and respect the tradition of presidents not saying a whole lot about their successors. And I think in a normal universe, that is appropriate. And I appreciate him acknowledging explicitly that this is not a normal universe. And I thought everything he said was so searing because it was true and because Mm -hmm. it wasn't hyped up. His words Mm -hmm. still felt somewhat restrained, even though they were accurate. I read a description of the speech this morning that was like, I think it was from Ryan Lizza. He said, you know, he accused President Trump of corruption. No, I don't think he accused him. I just think he observed that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. I think it was all more observation than accusation. I don't know a person who could have listened to that speech with anything approaching an open mind and disagreed with a lot of what they heard in terms of the characterization of this administration. It's just true. There are people who are gonna decide to vote for him again anyway, but I thought he hit a home run in terms of accurately describing what is happening. And I'm sure that that was hard and probably sad. I can imagine an element of grief for him too
0: in having to use his time that way. In my imagination inside the Obama household, there's been like an ongoing struggle with Michelle and Sasha and Malia being like, you got to get out there and say something. And him being like, it's not my place. It's not my place. Or I'm biding my time because I think there's an element of like because he's been so restrained from speaking out when he finally took the moment to say, I've been watching. This is what's happening. It was more impactful. You know, the reporting is that he was offered the final slot. And when the nomination went to Senator Kamala Harris, he said, no, there was this sort of I want to pass the torch to her, to this next generation who I haven't always been happy with him. You know, I had a friend that said, I don't think using his voice on the immigration segment was appropriate because of his deportation policy. And I think like his ability to sort of say, I know you always haven't been happy with me. And I'm not saying I haven't done everything right. But this man is a threat and we can all see it. And he I love the moment where he's like, they want to convince you your vote doesn't matter. And it does. And I think his ability to just, like you said, sort of it's like this <laughs> moral authority combined with this cool-headed observation. I think being in front of that, I think he was in the Constitutional Center in Philadelphia. He's a, you know, don't forget he was a constitutional law professor and just, you know, he's also exceptionally good at doing that. Let's zoom way out. Let's zoom way, way out. I mean, you know, I love history. And so that moment where he was like, can you imagine how hopeless they felt challenging the Jim Crow South? Can you imagine how hopeless and how unachievable It looked to get women the right to vote. Can you imagine like that ability of his to say a little bit of like, don't you dare complain and be cynical and think this is too hard or we can't make an impact when these people, your ancestors, the people who have come before you challenged slavery and fought for universal suffrage and took down the Jim Crow South, like that ability to say like you are a part of something and it has been hard in the past and it is hard now, but that does not mean we stop I just think he's so good at that. You know, he's just so good at channeling that historical view, what's at stake, but not from a like a fear mongering perspective that like we still have opportunities. We still have a chance to do something great. And I think it's going to be this next generation that carries us across the finish line on so many issues. I just thought it was so brilliant. I think we needed somebody of his stature. We needed a sitting president. Because what are we supposed to do, you know, fret because Donald Trump shreds every norm and be like, oh, no, he's shredding the norms. Whatever will we do? Like, sometimes the answer to that is to push back in a similar fashion. You know, I don't think it's an accident in Representative John Lewis's eulogy. He called the filibuster (laughs) a relic of the Jim Crow South. Like, I think he uses those moments to say, like, it's time to push harder. It's time to take on this next challenge. And I just... I thought he did a phenomenal job.
1: Reminded me a little bit of District Judge Reeves. I talked about on the Nightly Nuance recently, the case of Jameson versus McClendon. And this district judge made, I think, a very similar calculus to President Obama. He said, this is my forum. There are normal constraints around this forum. And I'm going to step outside of those because it's an abnormal time. And in his opinion, this was a qualified immunity case where a police officer had pulled a man over, a black man in Mississippi, driving home to South Carolina from Arizona, was driving a Mercedes through Mississippi and got pulled over by this police officer because the temporary tag on the car that he had purchased two weeks before was folded where you couldn't see some of the numbers. And instead of saying, hey, this is folded fix it, the police officer kept him there on the side of the road for almost two hours, Mm. lied to him, caused about $5,000 in damage to the vehicle because he basically ransacked it, searching it, put his physical body inside the vehicle. I mean, it was awful. It's just an awful encounter between a citizen and a police officer. And this district judge began his opinion with this list of activities that Clarence Jamison, the plaintiff, had not been doing. You know, he he wasn't asleep in his apartment. That was Brianna Taylor. And it's an entire list like that of so many people who've lost their lives to police violence. And then he says, you know, thankfully, this officer didn't kill this man in this roadside stop. But we have to understand that from the perspective of this black man who was pulled over by this white police officer in Mississippi, that was the risk in this encounter, that he would lose his life in it. And so the law does not permit me to allow this case to go forward because qualified immunity as it exists under the law today applies here, but that's unacceptable and we need to stop. And that to me is the essence of leadership. And that's why when President Obama began and you could tell that he was going to directly take Trump on, I thought, you know, this is another moment where what we do just isn't good enough. And I think as much as... People with a more activist personality than mine find those deliberate kind of I'm giving a speech or I'm writing an opinion that way of protest to be insufficient and ungratifying. To me, it is incredibly powerful when you completely embody the existing structure And use that opportunity to say it's not okay. It's not acceptable. It's not good enough. It's not even what it's supposed to be in a lesser version of ideal. And we have to speak out and do something about that. I'm really inspired by that, especially as a white person who thinks so often, what is my role in anti-racist work? And as a person who doesn't have that activist fire, to see Leaders like President Obama and District Judge Reeves using the positions that they had to say those
0: words with such gravity means a lot to me. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle and that steamy bee But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is
1: sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's gonna be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked to me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now, and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it, it just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I wanna adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist And switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com slash pantsuit.
0: The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit, they don't go together the way I want them to, or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go to for high quality vacation essentials like this premium European linen dress that's gonna get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt. In Japan, they like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials from quince go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q-u-i-n-c-e.com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash pantsuit We also heard from Senator Warren, who I said on the news brief, brought a word about child care as national infrastructure from a preschool classroom. I think it was one of her best speeches I've ever heard. I love that she was given the ability to focus on child care, especially in this global pandemic where we're really at a crisis level. You know, my own community, we had one of our major child care providers that's run through a local hospital, shut down to anything but hospital employees, and it has created a crisis people cannot find a way to care for their children and do their job at the same time you know she told her story about her aunt B and how her aunt B packing her bags and coming to take care of her children allowed her to pursue her career just I just loved it I thought I want more of this I want more of child care and parental leave and these policy positions that impact people's everyday lives but often get pushed to the bottom of the list in a prime time slot. That's what I want. That's what I expect from the Democratic Party, especially if we spend half the evening talking about the power of women's leadership. So I was here for that moment.
1: I felt similarly about the domestic violence focus. That was a moment that I thought, oh, something really different is happening here. Because just to give that kind of sustained attention, I mean, it was a long segment in the scheme of what was happening in the convention. Uh, when the first domestic violence survivor spoke, it kind of woke me up a little bit and I leaned in. And then when it kept going and I understand that it was part of kind of patting Joe Biden on the back for the Violence Against Women Act, I understand that that act is not comprehensive enough, is problematic in some ways, was part of the crime bill, which is unacceptable legislation, that there's lots of work still to do here, that there is lots of imperfection things to criticize. And yet, you know, domestic violence is the pandemic that we never speak about and affects absolutely everyone in some way. And that we just casually ignore. I think, Sarah, when you talk about waging the war against individualism that you're on right now, domestic violence is an an incredible part and parcel, I think, of that conversation. So I was touched, viscerally touched, that domestic violence
0: received that kind of attention. So I have two aunts that are survivors of domestic violence. It's I've worked with the domestic violence shelter in my community. In fact, I texted our director and was like, turn your TV on right now. <laughs> um, and I actually think Joe Biden deserves to be patted on the back about this. And not because, you know, I want to pat him on the back about anything. Like, I just I love moments in legislators' histories where they they have these sort of aha, like, oh, oh, my God, this is an issue and I can do something about it. You hear it with Kirsten Gillibrand when she talks about sexual assault in the military. And by all accounts, this is what happened with Joe Biden. It was not something he understood. He heard from victims and he fought hard. He brought these women to Congress, to the Senate, and had these excruciating emotional testimonies to force everyone's hands and say, we're going to do something about it. He fought hard and he claims it as one of his proudest achievements in a very long Senate career. And so, you know, I feel like if it was something like he just co-sponsored and he's trying to claim it now, but, you know, for most people, that's not what happened. And so as someone who cares so much about this issue, and I think you're right, I think it's You know, the Violence Against Women's Act is hard because it's a national pandemic we want to pay attention to, and it's also a hard thing to tackle at the federal level. This legislation has been the source of much, 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 much legal action. But the domestic shelter in my community depends on that federal funding, and it's really, really important. And he fought for it, and he deserves credit for it. You know, I think you can see how important it is to him that they put it in such like they gave it so much time. Once somebody like a public servant like that attaches to an issue and it feels personal to them, like they're not going to let it go ever. Like he's still bringing it up. And I don't think it's just because like you don't put that much emphasis on it in in your convention if it's just because you want to feel good about the work and you think you're done. Like, I don't think he thinks that issue is done because it's not. And I believe that he'll continue to work on it as president. And so I thought. I thought you're right. I mean, I think it was such a great moment. And it was really building upon this emphasis on the importance of women in the Democratic Party. We heard from Secretary Clinton. We heard from Nancy Pelosi. I read this statistic this morning and I thought, God, I'm so proud to be a Democrat. There are 105 women in the House of Representatives and 90 of them are Democrats. Ninety. You know, I just seeing all these faces, hearing from the first female speaker of the House, hearing from the first female candidate of a major party, then watching us nominate a woman for vice president, the first black woman, the first person of South Asian descent. It It just keeps building and building. And I thought, you know, we hear so many reports from people who go to Trump's rallies and just the hatefulness directed at your fellow Americans. And I'm not saying that Democrats aren't frustrated and they speak with great anger and judgment towards the Republican Party. And there was a lot of harsh criticism of Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell, specifically by Nancy Pelosi. But like, it's just how can you not watch this convention and see that there's this embracing we the people, we are in this together. We don't have to agree But do we have to be so hateful? I mean, it's not like there's, you know, this sort of meanness that you see, like make liberals cry again and snowflakes from the other side. And I just I'm like simultaneously so proud to watch it all play out. And I felt this way in 2016. And like frustrated that other why can't other people see that? Like, why do you again like this sort of idea? We talked about this on the Nightly Nuance that. The fruits of the leadership, like when you look at acceptance and a vice presidential candidate standing up there talking about love and the values of love and decency and justice, I don't know. I guess I'm just waxing poetic about why I don't understand everybody's a Democrat. And like intellectually, I do understand that. (laughs) But I just watched the convention. I'm like, come on, man, we're not like saying Join us or die. Join us or America's over. I mean, I think there was definitely some democracy, aspects of democracy are in peril, but not because the other side is terrible people, but because we have people trying to exploit a certain small group of people trying to exploit the system. I don't know. I just I was feeling very emotional last night. What can I say?
1: Before we continue our discussion, let's take a quick break to continue our reflections on suffrage, which feel very appropriate as we're making our way through the political conventions and getting closer to the November election. This one is from our very own Elise, and she spent some time talking about suffrage with her aunt, Carolyn.
2: This is Elise, and I am here with my aunt, Carolyn, who I have always looked up to in matters of feminism and activism and political interest. Um, and so I thought she was a great person for me to talk to you about what suffrage means to us. So Aunt Carolyn, what does suffrage mean to you? Well,
3: I'll start by saying when I thought about this that I decided I was kind of taking my suffrage for granted because, of course, I've it's always been available to me when it comes to civil rights. I think we're always working for what we don't have rather than thinking so much about what we do have. There's always Other things we wish we could have. I do remember the Civil Rights Act being signed when I was a teenager, and I was aware of discrimination at times, so I remember thinking about that. Of course, in recent years, I've been aware of suffrage being limited by gerrymandering, for instance, or by the requirements for more ID laws or the rules against felons and so on. Then in very recent times, there's of course been the limitations set by COVID, which have made some people, some polls not be open, not enough polls be open so that people had to stand in long, scary lines. And then of course, even more recently, our president has said point blank, that he doesn't want to give any more money to the post office who needs it to get all these mail-in ballots to people and back from people so that election can be fair. And of course, it's since we are a democracy, it seems like we would be for suffrage, not make it so hard. We've made it so hard in our history for every group. It's sort of frightening that we're actually working to remove suffrage rights from people rather than being a democracy that thinks everybody should be able to vote is sad. Listening to you talk about even
2: just the changes and progress and setbacks that you've seen in your lifetime, when as I've been thinking about what suffrage means to me, I've really been thinking that it means hope and change and that we have come so far and we still have so far to go. You know, it took over a hundred years for women to get the right to vote in the first place, which is way too long, and we've only had it for 100 years, and we still have so much so much ahead of us, so much work ahead of us to do to continue to ensure equal access and voting rights for every person in our country, women and a variety of disenfranchised groups. Um, and so I think as, as I think about suffrage this year, and I think about the centennial anniversary of it, I think about hope and that there's a lot of work to do, but suffrage means that change is possible and it has happened and it will continue to happen if we continue to work for it.
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a good reminder. Um, Martin Luther King says, has that line about um, the, how does that go? The long arm of history. um, Our universe bends towards justice, which I, I really like. And I really believe, I think, uh, the long arc of history has bent towards justice, hasn't gotten there yet, but it's bending there.
2: Yeah, and then Obama added on and said, I've got on a post-it here, right here at my desk and said, um, it's not often that we get to put your shoulder against the wheel of history and push. The hmm. arc of justice doesn't bend that way unless we're pushing it. And so the yeah. work
3: is here for us to do. Yeah, I was really hoping that maybe this year would be the the year to finally pass the ERA as well. Yeah. but. Who knows? Probably Well, there's hope, right? As long as we're here doing the work. Yeah. Thanks for talking about suffrage with me. You're welcome. Glad to.
0: Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin. So it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. EarthBreeze Sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze eco sheets—it's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets, and even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much! Right now, our listeners can receive forty percent off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com/pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com/pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim forty percent off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com/pantsuit.
1: They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. You know, I think what... I would say to people who are thinking, oh, you've got to be kidding me. It is not all harmony, welcome, kumbaya within the Democratic Party. And it is not. But what I would say is there is a choice on display by leadership in what a convention looks like. And the choice in this convention to the great consternation of many people who are active parts of the Democratic base has been to present, Politico has been saying this, And I interpret Politico saying this with like a real side eye that Democrats are presenting the landscape as they wish it to be instead of as it is. But that is leadership. Mm -hmm. That's what I want them to do. And I understand that there are people who are angry about some of the Republicans and former Republicans who've been invited to be part of this convention. But that's a leadership choice. And if you are thinking about the fruits of the leadership, that looks a lot better to me than a Republican party that keeps shrinking the definition of what it means to be Republican. Then Republican leadership, who every time one of their own speaks out against something small in a pretty gentle way that the president has done, rejects that person as a Republican or calls them a loser or uses some other name about it. And I think, you know, as we personalize all of this, which is what we do, and that's fine. When we're thinking about where we are in our lives with our political participation, a question that emerges for me is, is this making me better, kinder, more curious, more humble, more gentle, more grace-filled, to use our word, Um, or is it causing me to be more suspicious of other people? Mm -hmm. Is it causing me to shut down in my relationships? Is it causing me to develop a sense of distrust about the world? And I'm really clear on what I want the results in my personal development to be from my political participation. It is hard for me to get to the sort of sweeping emotions that a lot of people felt watching the convention. I'm just not wired that way. At the same time, I am not wired for, nor will I allow myself to participate in, the kind of emotion that is created in a Donald Trump rally. So we just have to ask ourselves, The kind of persistent question of life, which is, who do I want to be through my political participation? And I'm not saying you need to be a Democrat or you shouldn't be a Republican, but I am saying the leaders that you choose to follow, I think, ought to provoke emotions that feel more like assurance, trust, kindness, receptivity to other views than distrust, paranoia,
0: suspicion and anger. And you got a full display of those particular emotions from the president. I mean, during particularly President Obama's speech, I mean, he's tweeting, he's tweeting in all caps. Like Bill Clinton said the other night, if you want somebody who watches TV and responds on social media, he's your guy. I mean, to think that in the midst of a global pandemic with, like you said at the start of the show, with several states on, literally on fire, Iowa's... Economy and real trouble. It's people without power. You have international conflicts in Belarus. You have the Russian opposition leader being poisoned. You have a coup d'etat in Mali. You have all these really, really big issues that, in theory, The current president of the United States should be spending every ounce of mental energy and attention that he has on. And what is he doing? Well, he's getting his feelings hurt and watching these speeches and responding on Twitter. He's saying that QAnon, they sound like great people and that he really is saving the world. He's going after Goodyear. Because he doesn't like that they're not allowing people to wear MAGA hats. Like, I just, I'm blown away by just what Barack Obama articulated, his inability to channel any focus, any sort of rising to the challenge, prioritization of issues I've said this a million times on on this podcast, a million times on this podcast. It shouldn't be shocking, but it is.
1: I read this newsletter from Thomas Jocelyn of Vital Interest about foreign policy. And he wrote a really excellent issue this week talking about the promise to end forever wars. It was a critique of both the RNC and DNC positions on forever wars because they're, you know, both parties will tell us. We're going to stop this quagmire of American troops in Western Asia for decades without clear objectives and an inability to complete a mission. And what Thomas Jocelyn was saying, this is kind of my paraphrasing of it, is that it sounds Great to say we're going to end endless wars, but just the phrase war presumes that there is a, a way to win and a way to lose. And mm-hmm. the only thing available to us in terms of ending endless wars is just unilaterally pulling our troops out, which we can do. That's an option that's available to us. But it's a uniquely American form of narcissism to believe that that ends the war. That our participation oh, stops it. And I thought that like was that. such an insightful point. And it, it connects to me with what you're saying about the president in this way. You can critique a decision. You can say that was the wrong decision. It was the wrong decision for us to send troops to, you know, pick your country. But once you've done that, you've changed the situation. And so the there's a new question And you have to ask the new question and adapt to the new reality in formulating your next step. We've talked about this on lots of things. This is true about the Affordable Care Act. You can say it shouldn't have passed, but it did. And so now we have a new landscape that you have to operate in. This is true of like, I don't know, every action that exists in human nature. So I think what happens with President Trump And the thing that I would say to people who are on the fence about this decision or who are defensive of this president is look at his tweets, look at his public statements. He only knows how to ask the first question. He only knows how to say, should we have been in Western Asia in all of these different countries for these reasons or not? That's a fair question that he asks, But he doesn't know how to ask the next questions. OK, we are. So what? So what do we do about it? And I haven't heard, honestly, from the Biden campaign, a great answer to that question either. And I recognize a great answer doesn't exist. But what is on display for me that I care about is a consistent theme of Joe Biden telling the public, you are not electing only me. You are electing a whole host of people with lots of different perspectives who are ready to serve in my administration and start to ask those next questions. That gives me comfort. Even if I don't agree with, get excited by, cry tears over, like whatever, fill in the verb. Even if those things... I feel good about someone saying I'm surrounding myself with competent people of different viewpoints so that we can look at reality as it exists today and figure out the next steps. The only part of the roll call that I didn't like was all of the sort of Joe Biden's going to save the world <laughs> because that <laughs> and I get that that's what people do and it makes them feel good. And and so not to take anything away from someone who who gave that kind of speech, but I think the better message from this campaign is every single day saying we're going to work really hard to do better because that's really all they have the opportunity to do. It's a big inbox. And, and I mm-hmm. think they're going to work hard and competently with a lot of different stakeholders and viewpoints at the table to do a little better.
0: Let's just be honest. We all know it's going to stand in stark contrast to the Republican National Convention, which is going to be all about him. He's our savior. He's going to solve every problem. There's not going to be any team mentality. And if I was a Republican and I wanted to see a future for the Republican Party, I would be very concerned about a convention that's going to be co-opted into the Donald Trump show because the convention is about building your bench and it's about lifting up the next generation. It's about pushing forward names into the national consciousness and letting them shine like Barack Obama did with his famous Red and Blue America speech. And they're going to miss that. And that is something that is damaging for years afterwards, long after Donald Trump is gone. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but this the lineup, unless we're planning on nominating the St. Louis couple that held the guns on their front lawn, which are apparently going to be featured at the, the convention, then, you know, who are you lifting up? Who are you... What policy positions are you sharing? Where? How are you building the party? You know, I think this what this convention has been a really great party building moment. And look, that's what Joe Biden is about. That's what he's always been about. And I think you really, really saw that on display.
1: There was a very heartbreaking incident in Cincinnati last night, Wednesday night, when a longtime announcer of the play-by-play for the Reds, was on a hot mic using a terrible homophobic slur. (sighs) And immediately Twitter lit up with numerous people independently joking that he must be vying for a speaking role at the RNC. (gasps) And I think that that is demonstrative of America's clear understanding that the only thing the president seems to be running on at this point is this crusade against cancel culture.
0: Yeah. As he cancels Goodyear. Exactly.
1: If it motivates you to vote for someone who seems to only have going for him a crusade against cancel culture, I really want to sit down and understand your priorities. And I, and I mean that genuinely. I want to understand because to me, my understanding of cancel culture at this moment, and it will evolve, I'm sure, is a sense that we are all entitled to have everything we have. And that we are never at risk of losing it, that we should never be at risk of losing it. And that is not a philosophy that I believed in as a Republican when I was part of that party. And it is not a philosophy I want to have as an American, especially at a time when here in one of the world's wealthiest nations, we have been unable to provide for our people through a true emergency and disaster. I just don't want to have my animating philosophy be hold on with clenched fists to everything you have and never risk giving it up. I, I I don't think that's who we ought to be. But that seems to be what this convention is gonna be about. We'll be watching it though. We'll try to assess it as fairly as we can. And
0: we'll be with you here to do that next week. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is
1: listener-supported.
0: Special thanks to our executive producers,
1: Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen,
3: David McWilliams,
0: Allie Edwards,
1: Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph,
3: Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia,
1: Lori Lodau, Emily Neasley, Allison
0: Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Julie Haller,
3: Jared Minson.
0: To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com pantsuitpolitics.
1: You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.